Well, I've been an OBGYN physician for just going on 22 years, and it's gone by really fast. I mean, I do love what I do, and they say that time flies when you love what you're doing. Well, that's definitely the case. But it reminds me of a specific insurance ad that's on television that says, we know a thing or two because we've seen a thing or two. Yeah, this podcast is not sponsored by Farmers Insurance, okay? Just want to make that clear. But despite the years of practice and the experience, it just takes one encounter with a late adolescent who looks at you like you're nuts after you offer her a potential diagnosis to really throw you off your game. So in this podcast, I thought it'd be interesting to review a rare but very well-documented and very well-established diagnosis that some women can have. And of all the things to be allergic to, my goodness, to be allergic to this? Yep, we're going to talk about the potential and the real condition of semen allergy, specifically in women, because that's where this condition occurs. So let's talk about semen allergy, its presentation, workup, and what to do in this session. Let's set the stage here. So I'm seeing a patient between the ages of 18 and 21 with no significant past medical history who's G0, never been pregnant. And her chief complaint is every time that she has sex with her partner, her boyfriend, the vaginal area gets really swollen and it really hurts and it kind of burns. And so she's very concerned about this. Now, this was not her first partner. She actually met him when she was not virginal. But these symptoms started to happen when they started having intercourse for the first time. And after the first act, it progressively gets worse. Okay, seems pretty straightforward, right? So vaginal swelling, a little bit of irritation, sometimes some little tears, uh, which I addressed as fissures, uh, are noted. And so I thought, all right, well, let's attack this head on. As we continued, she stated she had no significant past medical history, and the only medication she was taking was a 30-microgram pill, which she took cyclically. In other words, she took her placebos to have a withdrawal bleed. Okay. Next, we talked about any kind of abnormal discharge or dysuria, and she stated that she didn't have any of those symptoms. The patient also, thankfully, had a recent STI screen and gonorrhea and chlamydia had been ruled out. And not long ago, she had a VP3 test that was negative for BV, candida, or trichomoniasis. So all that was good news. So then I decided to dive in a little bit more into the patient's sexual history, which brings me to my next point. Remember, it's always important to first tell the patient why you're going to be asking intimate or sexual questions, especially if the complaint is something sexual related. And as best practice, try to have a chaperone in the room unless the patient refuses. Now, if the patient is undressed, that chaperone needs to stay and the patient needs to understand it really is for the patient's protection and for the provider. But even with the discussion with a patient fully dressed, having that third person in the room just standing there diffuses the weirdness and the tension in the room and normalizes the discussion. Now, obviously, I'm talking about having somebody in the room as a chaperone who's from the medical practice or from your clinic setting. If it's a family member, I think it's a little weird if her mother is in the room and we're talking about deep sex stuff, okay? But that's between them. But in those cases, I do ask if it is a family member that's obviously very closely tied to the patient, like a mother, I would have them step out and then have somebody else come in also to respect the patient's autonomy and privacy. So remember, it's that fine line between privacy and confidentiality and also protecting the patient. So having that chaperone present for things that we're talking about that can be sexual in nature can be considered best practice. 
All right, all that being said, here's her sexual history. She has a male partner who is circumcised, and I found out that their type of intercourse is vaginal and oral, no anal sex. Remember, you can't just ask about vaginal penetration, and not all sex is just vaginal. So even ACOG says we've got to expand that, especially in adolescent health, to make sure that they're not doing any risk-taking behavior, and we just concentrate on specifically vaginal STI screening, but never ask about oral pharyngeal contamination or possibly having a rectal reservoir for STIs because we just don't want to talk about it is misting potential sources of infection. So remember, we've got to have these discussions. And my goodness, as women's healthcare providers, who else should be comfortable about talking about this but us? So you've got to go there. You've got to ask these typical questions to better serve our patients. Also, as part of the sexual history, I found out that they do not use any sort of over-the-counter lubricants. That's big, right? Because if we're going to break this down, which we'll do in a minute, into these categories or boxes of potential etiologies, one of those is contact irritation, whether it's latex, like a latex condom, which wasn't the case here, or it could be an irritant to some material in an over-the-counter lube. Remember, there's water-based, oil-based, and silicone-based. Oil and silicone are the most likely to cause a reaction, and the least likely is aqueous-based, but that didn't matter here because they did not use any kind of store-bought lubrication. All right, we got vaginal sex and oral sex, and found out that they do not use a condom. Remember, she's on birth control pills. Okay, fine. But this is why this is all super important. Because remember, she said that during vaginal penetration after sex, she gets swollen and there's little tears and it kind of burns. So first question always to ask is, when you're having sex, do you want to? Right? We've got to rule out this issue of coercion or reproductive harassment. And so number one is, is she threatened or is she violated against her will? And that answer was no. She totally wants to have sex. She's into this guy. That's not the problem. So first box, checked. So remember this in a stepwise fashion. First, social issues. Is this a coercion or a violation? No. Second, is this an environmental issue? The easiest issue is to find out if condoms were being used. Again, remember, they weren't because latex allergies is real. And so if she was using a latex condom, then that would help explain the issue and that's an easy fix. But that wasn't the case. Next was the issue of any kind of dermatological issue. Is it a, some kind of, of overdystrophy? But of course, that wouldn't be present just during intercourse. It would be present all the time. Plus, the physical exam that was done did not have any evidence of a vulvar dystrophy. So once again, social issues checked. Next, latex issue checked. That's not applicable. And then is it any kind of dermatological issue? And again, that box is checked because the answer is likely no. So remember, this really applies to adolescent or young reproductive age women. Vulvar irritation after sex in menopause is a whole different box. And we're not talking about that here. We're talking about young adolescents or young reproductive age women. So this is straight out of adolescent gynecology. So just put things in boxes, right? So first of all, we talked about is it a social construct? Is it is it harassment? Is it vulvar trauma from basically violation? That was no. Next, is it environmental or contact? Like, for example, with latex? That was no. Next is, is it a dermatological issue? We already said no. Well, moving down the list, of course, comes into infections. But remember, things like gonorrhea and chlamydia don't usually present post-coital with these kind of symptoms. They're more indolent. But yeast can present, especially if the partner's not circumcised, there could be a transfer of yeast as yeast collects underneath the foreskin. 
But that wasn't the case because there was no thick discharge when she had intercourse. It didn't typically present as yeast, and she's had yeast infections in the past. Plus, my exam was negative. Remember also, she had a recent VP3 that showed that it was not sort of uh, any sort of vaginitis. So now we're talking about infections, whether vaginitis or potentially an STI, but that's much less common. Well, that brings us to our last two possibilities. It's medication use, and here that's super important because remember, this patient was on the 30 microgram pill, and that's where I kind of laid the blame at, and I'm going to give you that reason in just a minute. But the last possibility, which is the rarest, is how I started this podcast. Because we went down this whole algorithm of why it's probably not latex allergy because they don't use latex condoms. doesn't look like vaginitis. doesn't look like an STI. doesn't look like a skin condition down in the vulvar area. And I said, you know, I think it could be the birth control pill. And I'll tell you why in a minute and tell you the plan that we made for her. But as I'm getting ready to leave, I said, look, if this plan doesn't work for you, I need you to come back because we got to make sure that you don't have this really rare condition where you could be allergic to his semen. And she looked at me like I was nuts. And she said, you can be allergic to semen? No, you can't. Yeah, my 19-year-old patient told me, no, you can't. Which I replied, yes, you can. (laughs) Now, it's rare, but it's even recognized by the International Society of Sexual Medicine. So that's why I wanted to talk about this podcast, because you've got to go down this whole list of possibilities. And even though it's rare, it is real. So I want to get into this issue of semen allergy next, but I don't believe that that was the case here, and I'll tell you why. I really believe the birth control pill may have more to do with her symptoms than semen allergy. I'll explain both next. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Semen allergy is the correct term when we're talking about this condition, not sperm allergy, because it's typically not an allergy or an allergic response to the sperm itself, but to proteins that are found in semen or in the seminal fluid. This is typically a type 1 hypersensitivity reaction. Some common symptoms of semen allergy are redness, swelling, pain, itching, and a burning sensation in the vaginal area after exposure to semen. That sound familiar? That's what our patient sounded like she had. But I'm going to tell you why I don't believe that that was the case here in just a minute. Symptoms usually start about 10 to 30 minutes after contact with the semen. They may not be confined to the vaginal area. In other words, it can happen anywhere that there's contact with semen. That can include the abdomen, the chest, the face, the hand, anywhere. It's not just a vaginal issue. So remember to ask if any of those symptoms happen with contact anywhere else outside of the vulvar area. Remember that because I'm going to get into that in just a minute. For some women, the symptoms are located, that is, they stay typically in one main area of exposure. But for others, the symptoms can affect their whole body as a type of whole global or systemic reaction. And it actually has been reported, if you can believe it, that it's even caused hives, severe swelling, and even anaphylaxis, though that's much more rare. 
Semen allergy can be discovered the very first time a woman has sex, but sometimes it can happen after a woman has had other sexual partners with no specific allergic reaction. Semen allergy can also occur with one partner but not the other. So it's not a global allergic response. It can be just to that specific partner and the specific proteins that that partner has. Now, this condition can be often misdiagnosed as persistent vaginitis or as an STI that's just not being picked up. So, what is a female recipient actually allergic to here? I mean, what's the issue? What's the problem? Well, there's two main thoughts here. The first is that there's seminal fluid typical allergens, and then the second is that there's seminal fluid atypical proteins. Well, the seminal fluid typical allergens includes prostate-specific antigen, but that doesn't explain why the allergy can be just with one partner and not someone else. So that's somewhat debated. In terms of the atypical allergens, these can actually include medications that the male partner is using or food allergies that the female respondent is having to that the male is actually intaking. In other words, let's say the patient has a severe uh, strawberry allergy or, or just pick something. I don't know. And her male partner eats a bunch of strawberries. Because those food allergens can actually get concentrated in seminal fluid, then it may be something that the female recipient is responding to. Is that wild or what? So once again, out of the International Society of Sexual Medicine, they break down semen allergy into semen and seminal fluid specific allergens and seminal fluid atypical allergens. It's either PSA that's a causative factor or some other proteins that are found in the male recipient's semen that the patient is responding to. Well, that brings us to potential diagnoses, and one is easy and one is more complicated. The easy way to try to diagnose this is super practical. That's put on a condom. The main criteria for the diagnosis of semen allergy is freedom from symptoms when condoms are used during intercourse. The second way to make the diagnosis is a little bit more complicated, and I'm sure there's nothing more that a allergies physician wants to hear than, hey, could you take some of my partner's semen and inject it under my skin? I'm sure they get that all the time. Is that weird or what? But that is actually a way to test it. You can do skin prick tests and determination of allergy-specific IgE levels in the female recipient. You can do that. And if a patient is found to be semen allergic, and this is the partner that they're going to be with forever, I'm talking about like they want to have children, well, that could be an issue, right? Well, in patients with the desire for children, washed, seminal fluid-free sperm can then be used for insemination. Do you see why this is really difficult? And there's also, believe it or not, published protocols for desensitization that can be considered. And yeah, that basically is a lot of sex stepped up a one in a certain day or calendar model to try to desensitize the system. Here's why I don't believe that this was the issue. Because they had frequent ejaculation outside of the vagina. So he would finish on her stomach or on her chest. Uh, it was typical practice for them for him to have ejaculation on her face. And there was never ever any kind of skin irritation on any of those other dermatological sites. It was only the vagina. So that almost rules out the issue. That's why I left that as the last on the bottom of the list, because it just didn't make sense. If it was really a semen allergy, it should be at all points of contact. And so that box was not fully checked, which brings us now to the most likely, which is her birth control pill use. 
Now, ironically, I know what you're thinking. Wait a minute, she's on birth control. That's an estrogen-containing product. So why would estrogen be the issue here? Well, we got to remember is that women on birth control pills use ethanyl estradiol, and that's not the same thing as serum estradiol, because these women, especially some that are much more sensitive to this, are actually hypoestrogenemic compared to healthy controls, not on combined birth control pills. So in some women that are very sensitive to these estrogen levels, that slight drop below the otherwise normal peak of serum estradiol can be enough to give the vagina a little bit of dryness and atrophy, and that can lead to tissue trauma during sex. Now, I do need to say I left one thing off on the physical exam a little bit earlier in the podcast because I didn't want to give it away. Even though there was no evidence of yeast and there was no evidence of skin dermatological issues like a dermatosis, there was a little bit of dryness in the hymenal ring. It was a little bit constricted. It looked a little, just a little bit, very mild atrophic changes. And that can be explained by the birth control pill. Now, it's true that taking a combined birth control pill gives you much more estrogen than something that completely wipes out estrogen, like Depo. Remember that estrogen levels are not completely suppressed with the Nexplanol implant, and it's not suppressed by the IUD, progesterone-releasing family. But with Depo-Provera, there is a huge hyperestrogenemic effect. And then second, or followed by birth control pill use, because even though, here's a clinical pearl, they're taking estrogen, it's not the same as their endogenous peak levels of estradiol. This is actually very clearly stated in one of the MOC articles from January 2022, talking about bone health and adolescence and birth control. In that article, it states that combined oral contraceptives suppress endogenous estrogens. We get that, right? I mean, that's how it works. But it also is a potent inhibitor of hepatic synthesis of IGF-1. That's a potent bone anabolic agent. So even women on combined oral birth control pills can actually have some bone effects. They don't lay down bone the same way as healthy women that are their age match peers who are not on birth control. They actually lag on bone development, which goes to show even though they're taking estrogen, it's not the same even for bone health compared to an age match control, not on combined birth control pills. Listen to these levels. Healthy young women not on combination oral birth control have mean serum estradiol levels of about 120 picograms per ml with a mid-cycle peak that's greater than 200 picograms per ml. But women on combination oral birth control pills that contain 30 micrograms of ethanyl estradiol have mean estradiol levels of only 44 picograms per ml. And for those women that are on ultra-low-dose pills, like a 20 microgram or lower, their mean serum estradiol levels are 41 picograms per ml. In other words, just because, remember, they're taking esthenyl estradiol, that's not the same as systemic normal levels of endogenous estradiol compared to a healthy control, not on combination pills. All right, so let's wrap this up. So what was my plan? Well, we went down this entire algorithm with a patient. And I said, look, I believe that your birth control pill, which is fantastic, may be making your vagina a little dry. So we had two ways to handle this. One was the use of a oil-based or silicone-based lubricant to protect the vagina so that there's less tissue trauma. 
And the second was to alternate when she's not having sex, a little bit of E2 topical uh, S-trace cream just to try to rebuild and bring normal blood flow and normal elasticity back to the vaginal area. So she seemed happy with that. So we hit it two ways. Rebuild vaginal tissue with topical estrogen and then protect the vaginal walls during sex by a, a thicker lubricant like a silicone-based gel. Well, I think I redeemed my credibility there at the end after I mentioned to her that, yes, semen allergy is a real thing, and I was able to pop up some information on my laptop. That's why I think it's important to have a desktop or a laptop in the room so we can quickly go to some verifiable professional websites and really show them that stuff that they may never have heard about is real, even though they've never heard about it. Because, yeah, nothing like a late adolescent patient to throw you off your game with a question to you like, no, that's not real. Yes, it is real. Anyway, as always, thank you for being part of our podcast family. And we'll see you next time on another episode of Clinical Pearls. 